Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome on to a Saturday edition of the 15 and 60. If you're listening on Dunked on Prime, you'll get it today. Otherwise, it'll be out on Sunday for the free pod. Apologies that we're having to do this today but there's a warriors game tomorrow in the middle of the day and it was just easier to get all the research done and just record now while everything is current so a few of these stats may be out of date considering saturday's games should we start at the bottom of the alphabet here danny we could do that uh so as a reminder the kind of the basic we use 538's both their Raptor and their ELO model. Raptor is more about kind of player quality, so it's a little stickier on preseason expectations. ELO is more about how things have been have gone so far. So you'll see some differences. We'll talk about those differences when they happen. And also, since uh, this came up at the beginning of last pod, there's that useful piece um, from Krishna Narsu, which was, I believe that was at Nylon Calculus, right? I'm trying to remember where that was. Uh, yeah, back, w- back when he worked there. Yeah, yeah, back when he worked there. And so that basically, you know, it's on, on when things start to stabilize not fully stabilized but partially stabilized and so now we're getting closer to you know nine ten games for a lot of these teams so we're getting more stable on big ones like net rating and um and and win percentage if you want to do that and now of course this is overall so that means if if something has been anomalous like a team's had a bunch of dudes hurt already then you see that differently but teams that have been going well so far probably feel a little bit better about it now than you did a week ago yeah net rating takes about eight games to get an R squared of 0.5 with the team's end of season numbers. So basically your first eight games on average, again, the Milwaukee Bucks, I think would, would you would argue are not going to fall in this category, but for an average team, about 50% of their end of season net rating is explained by their first or predicted by their first eight games or so. So I mean, obviously their end of season net rating includes those first eight games. So the, that's part of it also. And some of the other things that now we can draw a little bit more of a beat on here again, or getting close to is turnover percentage two-point percentage three-point percentage is more variable uh offensive rebound percentage so uh, a lot of the uh paces we've already got three-point attempt rate free throw rate assist percentage opponent three-point attempt rate so most of the stuff that determines play quality we've got a pretty good idea on assuming that these are the players who are going to be there obviously you change your personnel and that changes these things but for this group uh, these groups assuming that they continue throughout the year which is not the case for a lot of teams a lot of these stats now uh are 
relatively predictive and even the net rating is going to be pretty predictive as well at this point in time and, and so that would be good news for the first team we'll discuss starting at the bottom of the alphabet and that's the washington wizards the Wiz are six and three and not only are they six and three they're seventh in net rating plus 4.3 this is cleaning the glass filtering out garbage time the wizards are 12th in offensive rating 10th in defensive rating and the raptor model which wasn't as optimistic about them in the first place still projects the wizards to win 42 games which would tie them for eighth in the east and think they have a 50-50 shot of making the playoffs. And ELO, which is, again, more on how the teams have played so far, is 68% that the Wizards make the playoffs. And you brought up that one of the things that stabilizes, you know, that we get preliminary sense of right now is opponent three-point attempt rate. And that is a very good thing for the Wizards because at the moment we are recording this podcast, the Wizards are giving up the least free th- three-point attempts in the entire NBA, about 30% of opponent shots. It's actually significantly fewer than every other team in the league. The team that's in second in terms of opponent three-point frequency is the Pistons. They're 32%. So that tells you how far the Wiz are away from everything else. And that's a part of the story that I think is, is pretty fascinating for Washington so far, is that their opponent shot location is actually really close to what you want. They have very few threes. I just brought that up. And also the seven fewest shots around the basket and the highest proportion kind of makes sense of long twos, which is why the Wizards are at the moment number one in opponent location effective field goal percentage, which is basically that if you, you know, if you equalize things like how well opponents can shot make and everything else like that, you would expect Wizards opponents to make the smallest proportion of their shots based on where they are. Now, the Wizards are not first in opponent effective field goal percentage. They're actually fourth though, and fourth is pretty damn good. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for a team that doesn't really have a pure stopper on the wing, although Denny Avdia has been showing some signs. I think a lot of people think of him more as a as a four, but they still have some decent defensive players. Caldwell Pope obviously is up there. Gafford has been a nice rim protector. We'll talk a little bit more about him in a second here. And it's also noteworthy that they're 12th in offense without Bradley Beal really having gotten going yet. And the one guy that I also want to give some credit to here, who probably hasn't gotten as much attention because of the big trade, is Wes Ensel Jr. And I, I was talking to someone in the Nuggets organization this week who was saying, yeah, like Wes did a lot of this stuff for the Nuggets. Not to say that, you know, Michael Malone is not qualified to do that, but that Wes did a nice job, did some stuff with the lineups, the defense. And considering that we had rated Scott Brooks consistently among the bottom five coaches in the league, or at least Hollinger and I had once he and I started doing that, you had to guess that Unseld would be an upgrade just because generally just by regression to the mean I, I guess I think you know most new coaches are more likely than not to not be in the bottom five of the league and I think that's uh, shown to be the case uh, so far here yeah one point of caution though is that the Wizards have some significant opponent shooting luck so far I brought up the three point you know their t- opponents are taking about 30 percent of their shots from three which is really low they're also making 30 percent these are two different you know new numerators and denominators, but they're also making 30% of their threes, which is exceedingly low, including 28% on above the break. So like, I mean, so there's, that is something that you expect to regress the mean and make their numbers a little bit worse. Um, and so, so that's something to keep an eye on. And then the wizards are the part that is going, that is going poorly for them defensively. And so you think generally those things can go the other way is that opponents are making 69% of their shots around the basket. And one of the differences between, so the other two teams that give up the, the fewest 
that give up those really good shot the shot distributions is that they have those reliable rim protectors. And yes, there will there 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 are ways that the Wizards can improve this with personnel and everything else and the reasons to believe that it can be better. But them allowing 69% around the basket, it's not just it's not like some horrendous outlier and you're like, oh, they have Rudy Gobert, it's obviously gonna shift in time. Like I there are things to like about Gafford and some of the other guys that they have. But if you're thinking about kind of I brought up opponent effective field goal percentage, three pointers you can do less to control. Rim protection you could do more to control and so the one being good that generally have less control over the one being bad that you have more control over i would say that will lead to an overall shift that makes it a little bit harder on the Wizards. So they're fourth in effective vehicle percentage. We're not at a worse time yet, but if my prediction would be that they'll be lower than fourth, probably maybe 10th or worse at, let's say, December 1st. So you mentioned that crazy high shooting percentage at the rim. I'd expect that a team that employs Montrezl Harrell for a ton of minutes at center is going to struggle from that now. Montrezl Harrell also has been unbelievable offensively. Yes, he and has. We'll get, get more into him at some future time. Uh, but how do the numbers change? And this guy missed some time too with that quad issue. But how do the numbers change when Gafford is out there as far as uh, the opponent shot distribution and uh, how many shots they're hitting, particularly around the basket? So it's interesting. The rate around the rim so the proportion of shots when Gafford's out there versus any other center that the rate of opponent shots is about the same so he's not intimidating away shots for the most part however there is a significant difference in terms of how much they actually go in and that's the other way rim protectors can do kind of two different things in that they can prevent the shots from happening or they can make the shots harder and that I think we are seeing the effect of Daniel Gafford because it's opponents are making 71.5 percent of their shots around the basket when Gafford is out and 63.5% when he's in. That's a huge difference, about 8%. And Yeah, and if you look at the individual numbers as well, Gafford, this is the tracking data as opposed to just the overall team yes. numbers. Uh, he's only playing 18.4 minutes a game, although I think that's because he had to leave one of those games early is why that number is so low. Right. Uh, but he's still contesting by far the most shots at the rim of any Wiz player, 6.3 per game. Uh, and he's holding opponents to 52% shooting around the rim uh, in that sample. Now, let's keep in mind, uh, of course, that if they make three or four more that rim in, uh, then these numbers can look a little bit well, different. And, but they and, also, and we're yeah. also dealing with Gafford because he's missed time with an even smaller sample yeah. than we would be in a lot of other circumstances. Yeah, but I, I think it's quite noteworthy too that if you look at Gafford in 18.4 minutes a game, contesting 6.3 shots at the rim, and Harrell in 30.5 minutes a game is contesting only 4.6. So almost double the time and about 50% fewer contests. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, that that's not a surprise. You know, Montrezl Harrell's making up for it on the offensive end. That's what he does. Yeah. And also kind of on the Gafford front, the Wizards are doing a really good job not fouling when he's on the floor. They're actually one of the lowest foul rates around. Um, and then when Gafford is off the floor, that foul rate spikes. And that's also not a huge surprise when you think about it. Um, one that I want to keep an eye on, this will come up with a couple different teams. Spend a lot of time on this actually on the Cavs. Partially, I would say because they're typically playing small in these uh, they're not playing big power forwards for the most part. The Wizards have been pretty bad on the defensive glass when Gafford's been out there and they've actually been better. But I think some of that is personnel. And also we're dealing with small samples. So I want to keep an eye on that. The Bulls and the Wizards were both pretty bad defensive rebounding when Gafford was on the team. And then Gafford's a, a, typically a very good offensive rebounder. So you, you don't see that sort of dichotomy. Right, let's get to the wraps now. Six and four after a last second loss against the Cavaliers. And we'll bring in Cleveland here as well because I watched their game this morning from last night. 
and their net rating is plus 3.1 ninth in the nba 16th on offense interestingly uh, enough uh, that is surprisingly high uh and we can I'll, get I'll, into I'll talk a little about bit why of that's why. the case yes yes uh and then ninth uh, on defense which is right about where you would have thought so they project for 41 wins which would be a tie for 10th in the east hey when is when's the last time tied for 10th in the east was 41 wins wow that's that's crazy so both raptor and elo an identical 47 percent odds uh, of making the playoffs let's start with with this cleveland game and i'm going to talk obviously about both the reps uh, and cleveland here but uh dean wade is starting at the three for cleveland now and uh or d wade as i like to call him uh he is really more of a stretch four by trade but not the first stretch four to be pressed into service as the starting three and i thought he actually he had to match up with og Ananobi. i thought he did a pretty decent job moving his feet a few times uh, on offense he's not a great shooter when he puts the ball on the floor against a closeout he can't really like actually get all the way to the rim he doesn't have that type of explosion but what he will do is just kind of keep the offense moving try to just break the paint near the free throw line on almost like a horizontal drive and maybe look to hand off to somebody or just try to get a guy turning his head and, and then find someone on the perimeter so i thought he, he did a decent job within the offense he's probably not a good enough offensive player or defensive player to be a starter but as for a team that really is struggling to find a, a three-man he, he did a pretty solid job i, I thought particularly against a, a tough matchup in well og and Inobi. so something i want to ask you is i understand the theory behind having a floor spacer at at small forward when you're playing with mobley and allen as your starting four and five and the one that so with marketing yeah he is you know they just they just got him gave him a significant contract and all that i was surprised when Markkanen was put in the health and safety protocols and he's still not out of it as of now that Jetty Osman didn't get the spot where like I mean he's flawed in other ways but one thing that guy can do is shoot and get guarded out there and he was five of ten he took a third of the Cavs threes despite coming off the bench yeah Osman played really well uh including he had a couple of threes off the dribble in the third quarter as the Cavs got back into it they trailed by double digits for a bit of the evening and yeah he had a pull-up three off the pick and roll he had another pick and roll where he got forced towards the baseline and then snaked it towards the middle backed up behind the three-point line and drained one off the drill i think part of it is just that jb bickerstaff wants to set a defensive tone and a physical tone and just to and and osmond is i thought he played better defensively in this game like he had one play where he uh um well no actually that was dean wade never mind <laughs> where he chased down gary trent jr from behind after a a turnover but he wasn't just like getting totally taken advantage of i think also the matchup with Ananobi as well where osmond could have gotten taken advantage of physically it might have been a concern um but and he was playing well but they did not and, and they played him some in crunch time not the not the entire crunch time they they went to lamar stevens a little bit in the second half to get some more physicality defensively they, they went to wade also um yeah go ahead well and i think it's significant that since basically since the combination of Dylan Windler being healthy enough to play, but also the injuries Markinen and Love and Okoro, who's dealing with hamstring strain, those guys all being out at the same time has given him a chance to actually play. And I mean, Windler drafted in 2019 and just has been totally beset by injuries and good good to at least see him out there now. And he was he was more effective in the Cavs win over the Blazers than he was in the again the Raptors game. But still like I mean consider I feel so I feel so badly for him that he's missed so much time. Yeah, it was good to see him out there. He wasn't very effective in this game unfortunately. Um the other big 
thing in this game and we'll talk about the end of it too but the other big thing in this game was the matchup at the four between scotty barnes and evan mobley and i thought mobley really got by far the better of it barnes tried to isolate on him quite a few times and really got nothing uh barnes was only three out of 11 outside the paint and even only four out of eight inside the paint so he had a little bit of a struggle with seven out of 18 and he hasn't he takes a lot of shots like he even at florida state he had like 24 25 percent usage even as a relative not sure he did not take any threes he wasn't even really spotting up outside the arc his his pull-up long two when he gets a good look at it looks pretty good just the problem was that Mobley has a lot of length and really was disrupting him a lot uh, and uh, then Mobley was able to get his drive game going a little bit had one unbelievable backdoor pass but really the thing that stuck out the most to me is Mobley's defensive versatility when the Cavs switched they looked pretty decent uh, certainly on this Raptors team there was nobody that Evan Mobley has any trouble guarding a, on a switch when that happened and uh, Mobley and Allen did a, a pretty nice job of walling off the paint uh, over overall uh they the raps were 17 to 29 at the rim but they were forced into 24 floaters as well and they didn't shoot particularly well on well, those and, uh, and them yeah and the raptors only took nine free throws in this game yeah no that's a great point too yeah they did it uh, without but i mean that's one of the most impressive parts of mobley's game to me is how he's able to defend well at the basket and on the perimeter without fouling well, yeah, and really i can't remember him getting in foul trouble really any games this year so well, far. and this the game against the raptors brought in two of the what i think of the most intriguing definitive parts of cleveland season so far is that they are they have the league's lowest opponent free throw attempt rate by a mile and a half they're basically two per hundred field goal attempts lower than any other team and that next team is the spurs and so they're not fouling at all but then the other one which was very much at the forefront of of this game was Cleveland's defensive rebound. And so the Cavs in this one gave up 19 offensive rebounds to the Raps. And overall for the season, um, they're, the Cavs are grabbing only 68% of opponent misses. The league average is 74.5%. So it's pretty far below that. And um, actually, yeah. so before- when, you're, when you're playing three bigs, you might like to rebound a little bit more. Yeah. Now, Garland and Sexton are both pretty terrible rebounders. You know, that doesn't that doesn't help much. That, do, that doesn't help a ton. Um, and so I, I did a little bit of digging. We're still dealing with really small sample sizes, but I did a little bit of digging about it. It's like, you know, thinking about the, the Cavs have an unusual combination of players and the way that way that you know they're starting three kind of starting three bigs and then who they work through over the course of the rotation and so i wanted to look at okay well where when is 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 there a specific time that the defensive rebounding i was thinking back to like those some of those sacramento stats last year was like the defense was kind of okay when rashawn holmes was in but then whenever he was out they were trash and the defensive rebounding is largely the same um whether jared allen is on the floor or off and then it's actually worse than their average when allen and mobley are playing together um but then what they what that group does and this kind of makes sense when you think about the foul rate is that and when you think about that they're playing two small guards on the perimeter is that they're when Allen and Mobley are playing together there are a lot of opponent shots at the rim but they're not going in so again kind of like Gafford we talked about before is like whether you can dissuade the shots or whether you can make it harder for them to go in it looks like right now the Cavs are more in camp two rather than camp one yeah so let me clear out the notebook a little bit more uh from this game uh and Colin Sexton did not have a good offensive game and his passing still leaves something to be desired even though he's taken steps there he really just doesn't have great vision finding the role man there a couple times like Jared Allen 
was open for an alley-oop that he didn't get it to him Darius Garland is much better the contrast there is quite palpable and you know Chris Fedor said that the Cavs are kind of higher on Garland than Sexton long term and certainly based on this game that would be the case although I was impressed overall with the effort defensively by the Cavs and I did have in my notes here Jetty Osmond was like getting out on the floor denying people Sexton had, had a couple of nice possessions where he just refused to get screened and got over I mean he still he doesn't do anything as a help guy but he's a, at least can like get into people a little bit defensively like just the overall effort level defensively from the Cavs was really impressive but and then the Raptors even more so I, I just really enjoyed the overall level of defense and some of the athletes playing this game the Raptors put a ton of pressure out there on the perimeter they're trying to deny passes they make nothing easy uh even getting the ball in bounds and like a sideline out of bounds or a baseline out of bounds Toronto they you know maybe a really good team could burn them a little bit backdoor on like on some of these baseline out of bounds plays but they are switching they forced a five second violation a bunch a couple others were like you know 4.5 and they just made everything uh, really difficult so i i enjoyed that they still run on makes which i'm sure warm, <laughs> warms your heart uh, oh, yeah, as well um I, I think for uh toronto precious achua and Wait, chris boucher boucher yeah go ahead, before sorry. before we can, we can we i know we're gonna forget about the Cavs stats so <laughs> um before oh, yeah, we get yeah, yeah, more yeah. firmly into the raptors cleveland six and four on the season a far better than i expected um 19th in net rating they're outscored by less than a possession per game but they are slightly outscored but, uh, or a, a, a point negative 0.7 okay yeah um they're 17th in offense 16th in defense and remember that Raptor is more on player the expected player quality. They still think the Cavs are going to win 32 games, which would be 13th in the East, and have a 5% chance of making the playoffs. But Elo, much more optimistic, 23%, which is, you know, they're 6-3, and three, so, or 6-4, and four, sorry. So you might expect something rosier than that. But, I mean, it still thinks that the Cavs are going to come back to Earth at least a little bit. But let's get back into this game. Yeah, well, and also, I mean, with Markkanen, Okoro, and Love all out, I think that's, and Toronto, other than Siakam, who's supposed to debut actually on Sunday, uh, but you know, based based on what Toronto has done so far, and it being at home, you would have favored them. So this is a, ended up being a pretty nice win for the Cavs. Uh, and uh, before we get into the end of the game, I thought that the Toronto Bigs maybe they're getting a little too much freedom like precious achua is starting and it's interesting danny the last hoop summit that we were able to go to precious achua actually was at that and he was really more of like a combo forward prospect at that time was doing most of his stuff facing the basket off the dribble pulling up for mid-rangers which were really going in that week although most people there were like okay we've never seen him shoot like this before and uh he's basically kind of been limited to shooting wide open threes and not really hitting it but you know he'll bring the ball up every once in a while he at least knows that once he brings the ball up he needs to just go into a delay action and, and hand off to somebody instead of just like you know trying to attack but it's just kind of a reminder of what it takes to do to actually create and do skilled stuff at the nba level against nba defenders where this guy was as a prospect you're like oh this guy's gonna be like a combo forward and yeah he's grown a little bit to where he can play some center uh, and pretty much exclusively at center but like he looks like he can't even dribble out there you know like it's just and i don't know whether it's just he's been told not to or that there are just too many sharks around there for his skill level which could look okay at the lower levels and then you know just doesn't look good i, I think it's probably more uh both of those things that he's been told not to because uh, his skill level is well, not and, there yet 
And it was funny because earlier in the season, I had a note of uh, one of the Raps games I watched that I'm like, Achua has the ball too much. Like he's, he's tr- also trying to do too much when he has it. And so maybe it was, yeah. uh, maybe it's a pushback kind of in so that speaking line. Speaking of uh, trying to do too much when he has it, uh, Chris Boucher uh, has not had a great start to the season. He, he's been at, played a relatively limited role, only seven minutes in this game. He was negative four, 0 for two. He took a three and then his other shot, which I think ended up nailing him to the bench permanently was a hard drive along the right baseline with plenty of time in the shot clock got cut off went behind his back and then shot an off the dribble fading to stepping back after the behind the back along the right baseline and uh no that's not what you're out there to do chris boucher sorry and so they, have, they have other Birch, options. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Ken yeah, Birch played do. 30 minutes and, and, and Precious played only 18, but that's because Ken Birch yeah. was better. Well, yeah, and, and Boucher, I think he played pretty much, I think his seven minutes all came at the four. Right. But maybe with Siakam available, that, that could lead to him not uh, not being in the rotation. And the other thing that I was amused by was, you know, Evan Mobley is still pretty thin and it's tough for him to post up. But uh, when he posted up on Chris Boucher, it was like Jerry Seinfeld going to the opera. He's like, hey, I like this opera for crowd i feel tough so you like he just moved boucher went right through him for an easy hook shot uh so yeah uh we'll see i mean boucher still has a lot of talent and it was has had some great games last year blocking shots and stuff but uh it doesn't seem like he's as much in the plan malachi flynn had only played seven minutes but i was actually impressed by him he had three steals including a, a great steal i think it was from jared allen after a defensive rebound that that led to a layup and uh was two of two from the, the field uh delano banton out of nebraska also a canadian we talked about him a little bit in summer league but he was 11 points in 10 minutes in this game he still he took one three that he missed and just watching his free throws it doesn't look very smoothly his jumper is definitely an issue but he's basically playing some backup point guard for these guys at about six seven uh and gives them some good switchability i did think it was interesting that the raptors did very little switching mm-hmm. defensively they were mostly in a conventional pick and roll defense which i thought was weird particularly against this Cavs team that doesn't have like great isolation guys who are going to queue i think switching is best when you're against a team like the Cavs that doesn't necessarily have a, a superstar available well especially when they don't have those kind of burly bigs they can put you like maybe jared allen can at moments in time but that's like the other group that you don't do it against is like Jokic yeah. and yeah then- yeah or valentunas is like just burying you in the basket or something like that yeah um so then the end of this game was really interesting toronto og Anobi hits a three to put him up 101 96 with about 140 left in the game uh he was actually being guarded by Oswin on that play it went to a jab step and shot over him and og has not been incredibly efficient so far this year he's averaging 20 a game he's been really their number one option we'll see how that changes when siakam comes back i'm just fascinated to see what lineups nurse is going to throw out there uh i mean i imagine it's going to be barnes siakam and ananobi all closing games like that would that's what i think it's probably going to be maybe that'll give them a little more spacing because they've they're way too many possessions with kem birch like hanging out in the corner and he's just not a threat uh, out there um you know the center who was guarding him really was not worried about it but og hits that shot toronto has weathered the storm it seems like and then the Cavs actually would score on what ended up being their next three possessions they scored two points all three of those possessions and the last of those was Darius Garland almost got trapped along the sideline this is after Colin Sexton got tied up on his attempt to drive and get the game-winning layup Gary Trent ties him up with the, the shot block 
and Sexton won the tip over Trent. Huge win of the tip. Garland goes into his pick and roll on the left side. They try and trap him. He splits it and then gets into the lane and gets tripped by Ananobi as he's going up, hits two free throws. And then OG attacked off the dribble, ended up getting picked up by Jared Allen and Allen forced him into a tough fadeaway, which it, it was a pretty decent look for the end of the game, but he missed it along the left baseline. And uh, Cavs walked out of there with the win. Pretty impressive. One other thing, a couple other quick addendums on, on the wraps. We spent a lot of time on them, but this was an interesting game. Yeah. And they're a fascinating but, team. But, well, don't worry. We'll we'll make it up by talking less about the Bucks. Yes. Um, the Raptors waived Sam Decker before his guarantee date. So that pushes them per Bobby Marks about 620,000 below the tax line. Didn't expect them to pay the tax. The two ways around that are cut a non-guaranteed guy or wait or trade somebody, you know, so you can get their stuff off the books. Sam Decker, that's not a huge surprise. And it largely timing up with Siakam being back. Okay. You know, that largely, that makes sense. And then- Well, well, that was interesting too. We hit on it briefly that they essentially just extended the camp competition a couple of weeks into the season between Decker and Isak Banga, where both of them moved their guarantee date back to, I think, November 6th. And they were only going to keep 14 players because of what you said, but they had a little breathing room below the tax to keep one of the, somebody on for a couple of weeks but they couldn't really go much further than that. And so it was essentially both those guys agreed to push back their guarantee date until now. And so it looked like Bongo won that competition and then had his deal guarantee after Decker was waived. Yes. And so then the other big thing, and I'm going to be tracking this, I think, all season with the Raptors is this. I had this theory at the beginning of the year that it was basically going to be the rap. My theory was the Raptors half court offense is going to be bad, but can they get enough offense not in the half court to be viable? And they're currently 16th in offense. And the answer right now, the answer is yes. And I was right on the half court offense so far, 86.6, which is 25th in the league. And that I expect that to get get better with Siakam. We'll see what kind of Siakam is out there. I'm guessing he's going to come off the bench a little bit. It's going to take some time. But what is making the Raptors are like, wow, they're, you know, right at the bottom, towards the bottom in half court offense. How are they still 16th? And the answer is that a full quarter of their shot attempts don't come in half court offense. And that's by far the most in the league. They're running a ton. They're forcing a ton of turnovers. And they've been the best offensive rebounding team in the league. All right. Well, Raps and Cavs. Don't say we never talk about these teams. Actually, two of the more interesting teams to me early on was with some of the young guys. They have some interesting ways of playing. And another team that's pretty interesting to me as well, despite the fact that it, we've seen basically this exact cast of characters other than George Yang and Andre Drummond, is the Sixers. 7-2 and two now. Their 9.9 net rating is fourth in the NBA. We talked, of course, uh, extensively about their win over the Blazers on Monday, which was uh, impressive. First in offense! The Sixers are first in offense, 13th in defense. They project for 53 wins, which is... First, I don't know how they're treating Ben Simmons in this, but 96% chance of the playoffs, 95% for ELO. And to be first in offense for the Sixers without Joel Embiid really getting going at all, as, as we detailed in the episodes last week, uh, really, really impressive. How the hell are they doing it? They're doing um, I, they're doing a couple different ways. Um, they, I mean, in terms of offensive rating, the big factor that is leading Toronto, or sorry, leaving Philadelphia in that respect is effective field goal percentage is the most important of the four factors offensively and defensively you know it's the shots actually going in and they're they've been the most efficient at the rim 72 percent so far this year which is phenomenal yeah and, and again that's with Embiid being a little bit lower he was in yeah. the 60s uh, low 60s 
Yes, it is. And um, and they're the rap. Uh, sorry, the Sixers. I'm still have Raptors on the brain. The Sixers are, are second in terms of three point completion, thirty nine point two percent. And interesting on the, going back to the shots at the rim because so they're number one there this year. The Sixers were nineteenth last year, but then had been in the top ten the three seasons before that. So expected to see you know them probably a return to form there. Um, and you know they're they're generally playing with pretty good spacing out there right now. Um, and also like so I brought up the the historic stuff there. The Sixers, I thought this was an amazing dichotomy. So the process Sixers, I think this is the rough split of when it happened. The Sixers were 25th or worse in three-point shooting for four years in a row. Then now we're in the fourth season after that, and they've been top 10 all four of those years. So they went from the bottom to the top and that's really been a big part of their efficiency. And then the guy, I would argue the centerpiece so far of their efficiency has been a somewhat unlikely source, and that's Seth Curry. Yeah, Seth Curry has been really, really impressive. And he's doing it in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect. He really was kind of just a pure shooting specialist in Dallas. That's who the Mavs thought they were trading away. Curry also is a little bit older than you think as well. What, what is, this is his age 30 season, I want to say. This is his age uh, 31 yes. season. His age 31 season, right. Oh, that's why he wears number 31. Uh, so, yeah, Dallas thought they were trading away this guy who was just a pure spot-up threat. It maybe didn't take as many spot-up threes as they wanted him to. And remember that Dallas actually gave up a, a pick to get Josh Richardson. And Josh Richardson is looking pretty cooked. We'll see. Maybe he'll have a renaissance now in Boston. But, I mean, what a trade that was for Philly. I mean, Seth Curry, is he, I, I'm not going to go ahead and say he's been their best player, but probably their second-best player so far. And Mike Lynch had this stat that through eight games Seth Curry had the best true shooting percentage in, of anybody through eight games in the three-point era so since 1979-80 who took a minimum of 10 field goal attempts per game and the hilarious part about that is Curry has played one more game since then and he improved it because he went 9 of 14 from the field and has now he's all the way at 76 percent on 18 on 18 usage and Really good piece, if any of you haven't read it yet, by Rich Hoffman on the Iverson cut. Also got into some of the cool history there because Seth Curry's dad, Dell, was on was on a team that was that was a Raptors team that was facing that was facing the Sixers when Iverson was doing the Iverson cut and kind of sets the table there. Yeah, and yeah, that that seven gamer in the second round in twenty eleven or twenty or two thousand one. Two thousand one. Yeah. And so the piece is piece is really good, gets into some of the visuals. And one of the ways that the current Sixers are using that Iverson cut where you kind of cut, kind of go side to side through some screens is using that to set up a side pick and roll with Curry and Embiid. And Curry has been incredibly efficient in those circumstances. Yeah, it's really been awesome. He is now taking more jump shots off the dribble than in catch and shoot. And he's making everything on all these. I mean, he's 1.5 points per possession on 25 catch and shoots, 1.3 on 42 pull-ups. And he's also been fantastic in transition as well off screens only 12 possessions but he's 1.4 points per possession there and thanks to curry probably as the number one the sixers actually lead the nba in pull-up e-field goal percentage despite only nine of those per game being threes so basically they're shooting 50 percent on pull-up twos every game and tobias harris is a big part of that too Embiid will take some pull-up twos but between curry harris and Embiid, you know maxi has a his floater game a little bit as well uh they are a very very good mid-range shooting team as they have been for now uh, the second year of the doc rivers era uh, can i uh, propose a watfo here danny 
Sure. What are the chances that the Philadelphia 76ers finish the season with a top eight or better offense? Okay, so they finished the season. I haven't thought about this at all. I just came up with this right now. Eighth or better. Um, As a point of reference, we're both thinking about this. The Sixers were, they have never, They the last time Philadelphia finished, well, okay, I'll put it this way. They have never finished in the top eight in offensive rating in as far as cleaning the glass tracks up. They have been ninth twice. <laughs> they have been ninth twice. And then going back to 0304, they've never been better than ninth. Okay. Should I, should I go first? And um, no, I'm, I'm firming up my number. I have it. Okay, I do also. I'm going to call it 35%. I'm more optimistic than you. So you said, uh, you said 35? Yes. I'm going to 35% go thirty-five percent that they will be in the top eight. I'm going to go fifty-five percent. I think it's a better than better than half. One is Oof. that they've logged a lot of this, and yes, I am worried about Joel Embiid missing time. Of course, I am. But they have good talent here. They're going to get fouled plenty, and I, I, I just you know they've they've logged they've logged all this already. I don't think Seth Curry is going to be this good, but also like you could, I would argue that their overall talent level over the next you know seventy plus games of the season could be better than it's been. Yes, Joel Embiid has large played but Tobias Harris has been missing time not only is Simmons out but also they're not getting anything if they tr- from for what they could theoretically trade him for so they're getting zero from Simmons or the Simmons slot and some of these young guys will improve or they won't play like I think I think Maxi you know they're kind of picking they're the, I think he's kind of getting a little bit more of a sense and and everything else so I'm more optimistic here how does their uh raw offensive rating compare to last year it's two points per hundred possessions better uh 115.7 okay. versus 113.7 yeah because that's interesting i think a part of my thinking is that this whole like they're not a big three-point shooting team so and it would be really difficult for them to get much better i think you know their shooting is going to drop off a little bit they're they shoot uh i mean actually having niang on their second unit that's actually helped them a lot too like he's he's been really good shooting it but i still yeah, doc rivers teams just don't take that many threes if simmons comes back uh although i i have a very very low uh, opinion <laughs> of, of of the odds on that but oh. Uh, so, but basically, but my point here is that I think the rising tide of the league with I don't think the whole league's going to shoot thirty four percent on three pointers, and I think that that's going to help the rest of the league more than it's going to going to help the Sixers. Um, and speaking, one more thing but, here too, sorry, yeah, good. Speaking of rising tides, Gina Mizell, who's with the uh, Philly Inquirer, she's now in the Sixers after being on the Suns beat previously, um, just said that Paul Reed is going to start at power forward in their game on Saturday against the Bulls. He's starting at the four next to Embiid and a part of that is because they're spectacularly shorthanded but um yeah Paul Reed we'll see how it goes yeah Danny Green started uh, but then he, he messed up his hamstring in that last Sixers game that we watched uh, on Monday one last question here Danny would you care to guess who has the best net rating on the Philadelphia 76ers right now Ooh, oh is it Drummond Andre Drummond has a 16.4 net rating 0.2 points per 100 ahead of one George Niang Andre Drummond. Uh, that is a, uh, for reference, Joel Embiid is only a 7.5 net rating. Usually, uh, of course, uh, they massively struggle when Embiid is off the court. So that, that's a good sign. I mean, if they, obviously, Drummond and Niang and, and Curry, they're not going to all keep playing this well. But if they could get Embiid back to actually being uh, the offensive force that he was, it's, it, maybe they're in pretty good shape. Um, and I think also we we sort of forgot what this team was last year during the regular season because they had such a, a miserable playoffs. But also, a little a little more fuel for the fire that uh, one Ben Simmons might be a little overrated. 
Hmm. Let's go to the yes. Orlando Magic. The Magic are 2-8 and eight on the season. They are 28th in net rating, outscored by 10.3 per 100, 26th on offense, 27th on defense, and not surprisingly, Raptor and Elo aren't super enthusiastic about it. However, the Magic might have more players that I want to do like individual breakdowns on than any other team in the league, which is partially because <laughs> they're extraordinarily young. And partially, I've said this many times, that it's for me, it's players that are different or are defying expectations are the most interesting for me and um before we get into that the guy that i want to focus on this time and i I watched some film did some stat stuff is franz wagner um is some of their some of their kind of the other stuff to get out of the way um cole anthony unfortunately sprained his left ankle he is questionable for orlando's game on sunday against the jazz hopefully he plays he's been you know he's one of the guys that like to do the breakdown on at some point later in the year uh uh, yeah so so uh cole anthony they are actually positive when he's on the floor plus 1.1 net rating negative 30.0 Point seven net rating when he's off the floor unreal and and their offense is 27.8 points per 100 better when he's on the floor right now i mean so so you want to start the cole anthony for mvp bus you're the you were the bigger supporter of him as a draft prospect so I'll, I'll i'll let you i'll let you be on that um what other kind of not surprising element about the magic is that they are turning the ball over a ton 17.6 percent of their possessions is the second worst in the nba behind only the rockets who are turning it over on basically 20 percent of their possessions which is incredible um and it, i was reminded when i was kind of going through that and saw it and i was like oh yeah not turning the ball over was a hallmark of steve clifford team so while i there are a bunch of reasons why switching to Jamal Mosley was the right decision. One of them is also just letting these guys be a little bit looser and try some stuff. And, you know, the magic, I, I would say there's been a lot to be excited about. Man, they're turning the ball over. So be it. Uh, yeah, so uh, this will shock you, but their turnover rate is 9% higher than when. <laughs> so, so they turn it over on 9% more of their possessions when Cole Anthony is off. Yeah, and and the magic, especially considering half their team is currently injured, they're, when, when you get into their second units, it's it's players that are more on the fringes of NBA rotations or even NBA rosters. And that's a part of it. And I mean, I, I would say that's not the worst thing in the world for them because you're trying to get a good draft pick. And as much as I like some of their guys, this is the Orlando Magic problem from like five years ago is that you need somebody towards the top of the totem pole. And one of the bigger success stories in the early going for them has been Franz Wagner. Wagner, and part of why I wanted to start with him is that I was genuinely really low on him as a draft prospect. And I I was low on him and so after summer league two and I'm like I just didn't think there was I didn't think there was that much there and so I wanted to see okay well what's going on and the basic stats for him starting playing 32 minutes 15 points four rebounds about two assists and 16 per 60 percent true shooting on 18 percent usage so lower than the average spot but not by, by dramatic percent and part of what's feeling that is Wagner is really hitting his three ball of uh, 42 percent on 5.3 a game which the attempt frequency and the percentage are both higher than I would have expected and yeah and honestly higher than I would have expected it wouldn't have shocked me if Franz Wagner never averaged 15 points a game in the NBA and you know he may not by the end of the year you right oh actually and, in, and but... this is a good point to mention something that is one of my biggest pet peeves is when at this point in the year entity x says something like this player is doing this this and this that's never happened in a regular season before it's like yeah we're eight games in we're not dealing with a representative <laughs> sample here if it's anomalous to that extent probably don't need to be shouting now if we're 65 games in if we're 70 games in by all means spread that from the rooftops do all that kind of stuff but it's like yeah i mean we're we're deal we're in we're in severe sample size theater here but there's been a lot to like with wagner and something that i found fascinating for him and like i wasn't 
truly a believer in his three ball. But like you think about the shot distribution and, you know, getting a little bit more Moribali is that Franz Wagner brought up that he's taking 5.3 threes per game. He has only taken one shot that was a two from 10 feet and beyond. One shot all season, which is really interesting. And Wagner has only taken four shots off the dribble all season, which is good because that's not what the Magic should be asking him to do. Maybe Wagner gets there at some point in his career. He's not there right now. Um, But he is making about 1.3 points per possession on his catch and shoots. That's really good. And I watched a bunch of film. Um, the It's not a surprise to me that the way Synergy splits it, Wagner, uh, 28% of his catch and sh- or sorry, 28 of his catch and shoot shots were listed as unguarded and just 12 were guarded because, I mean, that's him taking the shots when he's open and generally Wagner was moving it when he wasn't quite open. And that's what you want. But also because, and this is a, I, it was something I noticed more clearly on this film than his Michigan film. Wagner has a very, he has a very low release. And by that, I mean, he doesn't jump very high and he releases it low on his body. And so that can lead to problems eventually in terms of him getting closed out on. Now, I think that can improve. Like that's, that is something that if, depending on how much you want to change a guy's shooting mechanics that you can improve over time. But I was like, oh, that's a, you know, that's a potential concern. Also a concern is that Wagner, like some, you, you actually are the one who kind of keyed me on this, that some of his misses were really bad. Like there was one um, against the Knicks where Wagner was coming off a screen. It looked okay coming off his hands, but then it didn't hit rim at all. It just hit side backboard. Like, like that, that's th- those sorts of things are a little bit of a problem, but Maybe my my two favorite things on Wagner, which I think you can tie offensively and defensively. I watched some defensive film too, are the combination of his effort level and his patience. And the guy that every once in a while is reminded of when watching Wagner was Kyle Anderson, where Anderson, not the most athletic guy, and Anderson has a better wingspan than Wagner does. But there was a, a great drive that Wagner had on on um, Jalen McDaniels, where he works he works all the way, kind of takes his time, gets into the lane. Gets gets a nice finish around the basket. And he's bigger. He bigger. He get to that. And not surprisingly at all, that same balanced approach worked really well against Lamelo Ball. There was a point point where Wagner was driving on him, and just like Lamelo just couldn't handle it. Not not surprising at all. And I really like that Wagner hustles in transition, especially if he was the guy that was closing out. He's the first one down the floor. He was working hard. And other than a few times where he got too aggressive, you know, like where he didn't have an advantage, is like screw it, I'm going to make it happen. I thought that I thought that it looked really good. So. The uh, and then so so all I would say there's more positive than negative there and then the other thing that I think will be better for Wagner as the Magic improve their talent level is that he's a very intuitive cutter and the Magic you know as they get more players that draw attention and there were some times where they're finding him on the on the on baseline or doing everything else like he's very good at that already but I think that when the team gets better spacing and gets better talent it will be even more valuable you can think of the way that the cutting works I don't necessarily know that they're going to go to a model like the Nuggets but you know being an off ball guy being a lower usage guy that can do that well timed is really useful yeah that's all a great point there and particularly because once they get good the the opponent probably will be hiding maybe a point guard on him you know if if he's playing at the three and so that kind of patient drive game cutting uh, opportunistic plays it could be a a nice feature of his game Uh, unfortunately it's not looking like that perimeter star at least as of now it's gonna be Jalen Suggs 31 percent from the field he is at 38 percent on twos and 23% from downtown. He had he's had basically one good game so far uh, for the 2-8 and eight Orlando Magic. Let us get now to the New York Knickerbockers. 
six and three, uh, sixth in the NBA net rating, plus 5.6. Third on offense, they were first. That's a decline slightly, but they had a really nice win uh, over the Bucks last night where uh, Drew Holiday did come back. They're still missing Middleton, who's in the protocols, and Brooke Lopez, but uh, they turned it after trailing by a lot early. Uh, they're 18th uh, on defense. You know, that's going to be something interesting to monitor. We'll see if Nerland's Noel's return, uh, which happened yesterday, it changes that. They project for 46 wins, uh, which is fifth in the East, 74% chance under Raptor making the playoffs, 78% by uh, Elo. And it's just, a, a, I got like a nice, like potpourri here of Nick's stats that I want to get into. And the biggest thing is talking about that number three in offense. How are they getting there? We said that Julius Randle, who had a huge game against the Bucks uh, with 32 points last night, but hadn't really gotten it going that often this season until then. But the biggest way that they are killing teams right now they are third in the nba attempting 16.7 pull-up threes per game the jazz uh lead the nba at 19 but the fourth highest team is the rockets and the knicks take three more than them uh and they are hitting 38 percent of those pull-up threes wow that is by the way the league median is uh, about 34 percent, which is interesting there's not apparently not that big of a difference between the overall three-point percentage uh particularly because basically you consider it Every pull-up three is going to be above the dribble or above the break, unless you're uh, James Harden shooting the step back in the corner. But basically, no one else take, takes that. Um, Kemba Walker has been a really interesting player for them because uh, he is entirely dependent on the pull-up three uh, right now, to the point that he's become quite similar to the guy who actually replaced him in Charlotte, which is Devontae Graham. Now, Kemba is hitting 48% from three and taking 59% of his shots out there. So that's really, really useful. But obviously, 48% it won't continue for him. And he really, he's kind of getting to the point now where he's got to be, you know, at least, you know, 40%, maybe 39, 38% from three because he's just taking so few shots at the rim at, at this point in time. His last year in Charlotte, he took 25% of his shots at, at the rim. That's, that's what made him so deadly was he could pull up off the the dribble from three but then if you tried to get out on him he was a great pick and roll technician he could set you up slam you into the screen and then blow by the big and get to the basket and finish can't do that anymore now he's now taking only 10 percent of his shots at the rim with the knicks well, whereas uh, yeah well and to tie in with that not a huge surprise because it's i would say in my mind it's correlated his free throw rate attempt rate has cratered you know it's yeah. basically a third of what it was it's actually less than a third of i think of what it was in charlotte and about a third of what it was in boston his first year and you combine that with only making at this point you know again we're not we're not all the way into the season 38 percent of his twos in total yeah and he also doesn't really have like a great floater game either so i like now what he's doing being being able to hit the three off the pick and roll is critical and that's something obviously that they didn't have uh, last year we've talked about that quite a bit Fournier also has been outstanding there and the Knicks uh interestingly actually shoot worse a lower lower straight percentage not even e-field goal uh they're basically shooting six out of 16 on average on threes every game and five out of 16 on pull-up twos every game so they're actually shooting worse on pull-up twos than pull-up threes i imagine that will normalize uh and they take the most overall pull-ups per game twos and threes 32 shots per game are pull-up jumpers off the dribble so that's and that's if you make them that's great they're very hard to defend but it's also you'd like to see a few more spot-ups 
but it, it's nice to be able to kind of control your three your own three-point shooting in that way where you can go get one off the dribble as they have been um what, what do you think of the Kemba versus Derek Rose at the end of games Danny so I mean it seems like kind of a cop-out to say because to say yeah, the, the stats playing, really favor Rose up they, they do and I mean part of that is that the Knicks starting lineup has actually been struggling defensively I the addition of Nerlens Noel to the rotation will shift to these things in a couple different directions depending on how Tibbs wants to use him but I, I when you have kind of other ball handling threats you know like playing with 48 I actually kind of like Kemba just because it's easier to, to kind of slide him off ball and you know you're always going to be playing a big that doesn't really space the floor for them so the drive game you know Rose is successful playing Playing with playing with bigs, you know, with a lot with Taj, but. So I would say I would probably lean more Kemba than Rose, even though you could make an argument that Rose is a better player right now than Kemba Walker just because of some of the fit stuff. But if there's a night that Kemba just doesn't have it going or his knee doesn't feel good, then I would have no qualms whatsoever playing Derrick Rose in that spot. Yeah, the the stats, the Knicks are 32 points when 100 possessions better with Rose on the floor, but only 10 of that difference is on offense, 23 is on defense. And of course, Rose playing with that second unit, which has killed people with quickly, and Burks, Taj Gibson has been really good so far this season. We'll see whether he still plays or not. But uh, that group has below a 100 defensive rating as well. And the Knicks stars are getting lit up. Kemba has the worst uh, defense rating on the team with 117.4. Yeah, it's tough. Rose to me is the better defender. He's a little bit tougher. Teams aren't going to try and like post him up as much as they would Kemba. I agree when Julius Randle has it going, you probably like Kemba better because he can space the floor a, a little bit more. Rose probably gives you a little bit more in transition at this point. Rose can create shots a little bit better uh, as well. So yeah, it's really a tough call when Kemba has it going. When the other, I think when the other team has like a big center out there who wants to be in drop coverage, you know, like the Bucks or something, Kemba might be a, a better option. Although Rose killed the Bucks last night without Brook Lopez, obviously. And yeah, I think it really is just a game to game. Well, and I like the so I thought about it more in terms of surrounding talent and what what you, how they're playing, but you think about it in terms of opposing talent, and I think all of that is part of the equation for the coaching staff. One other quick note here: Mitchell Robinson, seventy-seven percent true shooting, but he did not, of course, make the list that you mentioned earlier because he is not taking more than ten field goal attempts per game of the highest true shooting percentage through eight games because he only has an eight point four percent usage, which it seems like with the hops that he has. And getting on the offensive glass where he's not been as good. He's only 11% offensive rebounds, which you know you would hope he could get that where he's been in, in times in his career. He's been higher than that as well. Um, you know, he also doesn't look quite as explosive. I mean, he's huge, obviously. So he's always going to be able to go up and dunk around the rim and, and protect the rim. But he's not making those just like crazy wow plays like right at the top of the square. I think some of the, the foot injury that he's working back from is maybe has sapped his athleticism a, a little bit there. But uh, hopefully that will return but not to say that he's been ineffective this year but that is a lower use with his athleticism and size they should be able to find him a few more shots uh, than that we can move on to the team that the knicks beat on friday and that is the milwaukee bucks the bucks are now four and five they are 23rd in net rating outscored by 2.1 per possessions 19th in offense 17th in defense and as we've mentioned in passing a bunch of times already in this podcast, the representative sample is not really there for the Bucks because they've been missing three of their four best players most of the recent time. Drew came back and came off the bench on Friday. But 538, the Raptor models still think they're a damn good team, which they are. 53 wins would tie them for first in the East. And ELO, which is more about what things have happened so far, think gives them only an 82% chance of making the playoffs. I'm willing to 
say that unless Brook Lopez just keeps on missing time, we don't have a timetable for him. And also, uh, interestingly, Grayson Allen scored 22 in the aforementioned game against the Knicks on Friday and is currently, as we record this, questionable with a non-COVID illness for their game against the Wiz on Sunday. Yeah, it's concerning that Brook Lopez has no timetable uh, and you know, who, who knows what the, the injury might be for him. Hopefully this doesn't devolve into like a Serge Ibaka type of situation where he's trying to come back and because you never... I can't remember hardly any times when a guy has had a back injury and immediately got the surgery. Usually they'll try to come back. They'll try to rehab it. Backs are probably the trickiest thing that there is to operate on and really know because so much of it is just like a pain tolerance situation and you try to rehab it and get it back to where you know it's manageable um but with this is like the most boring team in the nba to me right now they won the championship last year honestly the the one thing that's happening that i care about is that Giannis Antetokounmpo is continuing to play extremely well he looks great 75 percent from the line 60 out of 80 so far on the season also shooting 31 percent from three on five attempts per game which is in a in the half court is almost good enough to actually be taking it we'll see if that continues uh, or not and you know at least to the point i'd like to see what it looks like when it's wide open versus not wide open i'm guessing pretty much all those are, are wide open um but here's the stat for you Giannis is only playing 31 minutes a game back to kind of where he was two years ago and honestly i think that's what bud is is comfortable with and last year when they they were kind of pushed into pushed him out of his comfort zone in a number of ways and they're still doing a lot of switching like they did a lot of switching against the pistons for example with the anacupo brothers uh, driving a lot of that but i think now Mike, unless they really get into trouble from a seeding perspective over a long period of time, I think they'll continue to not play Giannis that many minutes. And when he's on the floor, even with all their absences, 6.7 net rating. When he's off the floor, negative uh, 17.4. Uh, 14 of that is on offense and 10 of that is is, is on defense. That uh, tw- 21.4 differential when he's on versus when he's off. Yeah, and I mean, any team missing three of their four best players would be in big trouble. And they were able to, that, that win against the Pistons where Giannis was not only the best player on the floor he was like the best second and third best players on the floor um <laughs> those are th- those will those will happen when you're facing inferior competition but when you're facing a capable team like the knicks and yes drew did play but he only played i think it was 20 minutes um in in that one it's it's going to be a challenge so like i, I think with the bucks it's just waiting for their guys to get back yeah uh, other interesting thing for Giannis here is two shooting percentage about the same as last year and again this is a lower offense environment so and 32 per ho-hum uh that 31 percent for three is about actually where he's been the last couple of years he finished it at 30 percent uh however he is hitting a lot better from the mid-range uh, where he's taking a few more and he is taking fewer as you'd expect at the rim with fewer threats around and they're playing Thanasis next to him basically uh, a lot of the time lately and Thanasis can't shoot at all so uh, the pain is a lot more clogged up in, in that Pistons game he's distributing more I think he's uh, having his best season so far as a distributor finding shooters but he has reduced uh, his share of shots coming at the basket from his first MVP season that was 50 seven percent then 48 then 45 last year and now all the way down to 37 percent of his shots now are coming at the room so he is actually he's not quite as athletic as he was uh but you know, I, i'm not going to tell you that he's not as good of a player and he's taking his average shot attempt for basically the first time in his career since his rookie year's average shot attempt is coming from more than 10 feet away it's increased from 9.5 last year to 12.1 this year but let's let's move on I, I don't really have anything else to say uh, on the skeleton bucks at this point other than this 
that uh, Seth Partnow noted that this year so far, 32% of the Bucks minutes have been played by replacement level players. Last year, it was 19%. And considering that they're in a sensible contender, 19% was a pretty high number, I would say, last year. And they they had uh, didn't have a lot of depth and, and they had some, you know, like Drew being out with COVID and stuff d- during the season. So let's, uh, let's move on to the Miami Heat here. Six and two. Uh, Danny was going to talk about their game against Boston in a second here. Second in the NBA in net rating, plus 12.0. They are actually playing the Jazz at home as we speak. Seventh on offense and second on defense. That is uh, 111.6 on offense, 99.6 on defense, especially projecting for 30 wins, third in, or sorry, 50 wins, third in the East, 88% chance to play us with Raptor, ELO, 84. Yeah, and so a, a couple of things on the heap before we, before we get into that game. Kyle Lowry got injured late in the third quarter on a very, very frustrating play where oh my God. Duncan Robinson was trying to take a charge, did not take the charge, flopped on it, and flopped into it, Kyle. Not, not only did he flop, he like shoved himself backwards off of Jalen Brown, who was totally under control. They did a great job of not calling it. And so he and, yeah, flopped he- into Kyle Kyle Lowry's left ankle. Lowry had an ankle sprain, did not return. However, fortunately, he was able to start the start the game on Saturday against the Jazz. So hopefully he's not particularly worse for wear. I'm always you know a little bit cautious about Kyle Lowry ankle injuries after that one that lingered in the playoffs against the Cavs. One of the myriad times they lost to Cleveland. Um, the Heat, you know. Second in defense, part of that is that um, they've been the best defensive rebounding team in the Eastern Conference. They're third overall behind the Warriors and the Portland Trailblazers. Interesting, the couple, the Warriors and the Heat are often play pretty small there, and they're both up there. And that's really impressive to me, considering their scheme and not playing particularly big, but they have a lot of guys kind of on the smaller line that can, you know, Kyle Lowry in particular, that can rebound. And that's also a, a, a split for the Heat. So Miami was second the year they made the finals. Then they were 18th last year in defensive rebounding and then they're you know currently third so that's good and then a big part of why they're seventh in offense is that they are tied with Chicago as we record this for the highest free throw attempt rate 22 free throws attempted per 100 field goal attempts so that's really good thank you Jimmy Butler that is a big part of a big part of that and the game they played against Boston was fascinating. So it was, I actually had that as my secondary game watching live, but I was focusing more on, God, what game was that? Um, a different game. And then when kind of as things started to turn in it, I was like, shit, I should be watching this. U- more Utah, goals. Atlanta. Utah, Atlanta. That's what it was. And so I'm like, well, I should do that. But then I ended up just going back after the fact and watching the whole, watching it from the beginning. And I, I thought that there are kind of some big picture stuff and some small picture stuff. Um, it, it wasn't a huge surprise to me to see see Miami's offense struggle against Boston's defense because not only is Boston the most aggressive switching team in the league so far this year, but also they have very few weak links in the rotation. I would say that they have more conceptually than the Raptors do, but they actually switch more than the Raptors do. And so Miami, you know, if you're getting them into a one-on-one game, then it 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 kind of raises some of those risks. And they're not a great three-point shooting team other than a couple of very specific guys. And Duncan Robinson, I thought the the Boston got a little lucky. Like he missed a couple of really clean looks on his way to five of 17 from three. He took almost half of Miami's three-point attempts himself. But that's crazy to see. I, I what Actually, I bet you that's never happened before. For a guy to take 17 or more field goal attempts and for them all, all to be threes. threes. He's five of 17 from the field and five of 17 from three. I bet you that's never happened before. 
I, yeah, be, I, I'd be interested in, I don't have a good way to filter for that, but yeah, I could actually, I have one way to do it. Um, but so the game started out and I thought that it, it was interesting to, I, I always try to watch a game as if I don't know what happened, but I knew that Boston won this one going away, was watch the first quarter and Miami was ahead and they were pretty much, pretty consistently ahead during the early going. This was, some might remember this game as being one that right after the, well, a, a couple days after the Celtics players only meeting, nobody scored for the first three minutes. It was just, just just clang after clang. And Miami was ahead by six at the end of the quarter. And I was just like, I think the Celtics are playing better than them. Um, Boston missed a couple of clean looks. The the Heat weren't getting to too much. They were also, you know, I, um, I, I thought that Boston's defense was kind of causing some problems. And so then it, it ended up kind of going, going in that direction. Um, and one play that I thought was really telling in the early going was that Jimmy Butler got a switch and got Al Horford on him. And instead of like trying to drive to the basket or flailing, getting a foul or something else like that, he just took a deep two step back and it didn't go in. It's like, okay, if that's all you're going to do with it, then you didn't do anything with your advantage. And then there was a, a play a little bit later when in the late first, when Dennis Schroeder got put on Butler and actually competed with him. And, you know, I think he took like a free throw line jumper. It's like, okay, you know, like Schroeder, you did your job there. Good, good, good there. And the bigger part was also that because Miami in their starters lineup, I think they actually have pretty good ball movement, which is part of what's what's greasing, kind of greasing things for them offensively. A switching team, it just took them out of their flow. It took them out of the rhythm. And so some of those passing lines weren't there. And also the Celtics did a phenomenal job all game getting back. So even when Lowry doing those hit ahead passes, and he was, he was doing them very well. They weren't generating points that often because, you know, you're like, you're getting it to Duncan Robinson and he's like, oh crap, there's a guy here. I'm going to dribble around a little bit. Like the layup isn't there. And so that was better for Boston. I thought that really helped take Miami out of what they were doing. There were times that Miami did a great job against the switching team. Like there was one when Hero got Grant Williams on a switch, beat him so quickly that help couldn't get there in time. Thought that was really good. But then for me, the biggest takeaway, which kind of feels sad in light of what happened immediately, uh, happened towards the end of this game, is that I thought Jalen Brown was the best player on the floor. Defensively, he was the bet to me the best switch defender that they had. He was doing a pretty good job on anyone, including some nice possessions on Bam. He was the best defender on Tyler Hero as well, who was three for 11. And then Jalen Brown was, you know, he wasn't an amazing offensive player, but this is, you know, this was an 89 possession game. It was, it was a very slow one. It was very defensive centric. And I thought he was able to get to his spots better. Tatum was awful again, offensively. And then unfortunately, Jalen Brown, um, he left the game early with hamstring tightness and Ime Odoka said he could miss a week or two. Hamstrings are notoriously tricky. So <laughs> I, I, I thought that... Especially on this podcast. Especially on this podcast. Um, and then one other one other thing, I can get into some of the details people want it, um, but um, I was it was interesting when you see these two teams that have some similarities in terms of how they play to see... I, I, I hadn't noticed this, the parallels between Dennis Schroeder and Tyler Hero's aggressiveness being useful, where basically if the team is just kind of a little bit stagnant, one of the things you could do is just have a guy who just goes. And so with Schroeder, he was trying to get into the paint, trying to generate mismatches and help and everything like that. And that's what Hero was doing. And neither one of them was amazing in this one. You know, Schroeder was five for 12 and he was plus 26, but that was, you know, there were the, the, some of that was they played really good defense, but I thought Schroeder did well. And the Hero was, you know, Hero, the plus minus was horrible, but I thought that his place within the offense was totally fine. And, you know, they're, especially against the switching defense, it's good to have that guy who just knows, okay, get my matchup and run. And that's what I think what Schroeder did, what Hero did. Um, there was also a hilarious play. The announcers, I, I'm trying to remember which, I think I was watching the Heat feed, were going crazy where Horford 
did a drive and dunk where he basically got to the basket before anybody could react. But then I think it was Bam. It might've been Hero did a shitty reach foul on him. So it was actually a dunk and one. And it was basically like everybody being like, wait, Al Horford could still do that. That was absolutely delightful. Yeah. He, he got rejuvenated by taking a year off in, uh, in OKC, essentially. Yeah. Um, the Celtic um, stats before I forget, yes. uh, four and five on the season, uh, but they're plus the, so they're positive in net rating plus 1.6 is actually 12th in the NBA, 20th in offense, eight in defense and depending on the model raptor 66 percent chance to make the playoffs elo 42 and uh josh richardson returned for them uh, he had missed he had missed a little bit with uh, i believe it was a foot contusion he uh returned for them in the game against dallas but he did not start so they were starting dennis schroeder in jalen brown's place and we'll see whether that continues it, it kind of depends on how that game goes let's get to the pacers now a, a disappointing three and seven on the season they've been more competitive lately uh and negative 0.2 net rating is 18 so they've underperformed their point differential by quite a bit remember they had those er two early losses by one point each to washington and charlotte in, in two wild games they're ninth on offense though interestingly enough given the available personnel i would have thought they might struggle a little bit more on that end but the the defense has not been good 110 that's 23rd uh they are still tied for 41 wins so tied for 10th in the projection in the east and 47 percent chance of the playoffs with raptor 30 percent with elo and Malcolm Brogdon again missing uh, their loss to the Blazers. Uh, this is a no non-COVID illness, but uh, that's better than him having a hamstring issue, which he actually was able to come back from pretty quickly. They're also missing Jeremy Lamb now. He's missed three straight with a, an ankle injury. And Danny, the eternal question must be examined once more. Yeah, I mean, it's been a curiosity for me for what like three years now of the like Turner Turner Sabonis splits. And we're dealing with such a small sample. I mean, the Pacers have played 10 games, but also some of those guys have missed some time that not trying to read too much into this. And when you're cutting the slices even narrower, then you get into even noisier stuff. But when Turner and Sabonis have played together, the Pacers have been slightly positive. And remember, that's typically starting and closing games. So you're playing against better opposition. Um, offensive and defensive ratings around 102. And the significant stat for me with those lineups is that the Pacers are never getting to the getting to the free throw line with that group out there. They are in the first percentile. First percentile is bad in free throw attempt rate. Then when Turner's on and Sabonis is off, they're outscoring teams by 5.4 per hundred. That's the best of any of these splits. And they're doing it despite the defense be actually being significantly worse, 109.2. Um, and then that's a 114.6 offensive rating. So that's much, much better offensively. But um, a part of that is that, um, you know, I brought up the defense is that opponents are making 46% of threes. You expect that to regress to the mean, though the Pacers own offense will probably regress a little bit to the mean. And then when Sabonis is on and Turner is off, the Pacers are negative three net rating. Um, and part of that is because they have a 119 defensive rating. So they go from a 101, 102 and 109 with Turner on, depending on the split, to 119 with just Sabonis. And yeah, both the Pacers and their opponents are shooting unsustainably high on threes in that, so you expect the defensive rating to improve. But also, they're in the bottom 20th percent bottom 20 percentile in three of the four defensive four factors in the Sabonis only minutes and I believe the only one where they're not in the bottom 20th percentile is turnovers which is you know he's part of that but not a huge part of that and Carlisle doing the same thing that we've seen at other times where one of the two is basically always on the floor they've only had 25 non-garbage time possessions where both Turner's bonus were off the floor so not a big surprise there yeah so what have you made of Miles Turner's season it's been rather inconsistent 
so far. Well, it, it, it's uh, been consistent so, in so terms what do you of take away from that? in terms of his shooting attempts. It has been very inconsistent. Caitlin Cooper did a really good piece on this. I think it was about a week ago. Um, on you know his role within the offense, it, they're not involving him as, in as many actions. It is often going to be situational. And so Turner, he has six games with seven shots or fewer, and then he has none with eight attempts or nine attempts, and then he has four with ten plus, including that 40, plus, 40 point game against the Wiz, scored twenty five against the Knicks on Wednesday. I so so. In that respect, it has been very hit or miss. But I mean, the overall numbers, I would say on Turner, the statistical stuff and the film that I've watched, I think it's been a really good year for him. He's 68% true shooting, shooting 41% on five threes per game. Both of the three-point things would be career highs. Also getting to the line a little bit more. Now, some unsustainable stuff there too. Um, 81% in the restricted area and 67% on floaters are way, way better than his historical stuff. And that's part of why it's a 10-game sample, not an 82-game sample. But the bigger reason, yes, the offensive up tick is is positive and even with a regression will still be good the big reason why is that i'm such a turner believer is that the defense has been good when he's been on the floor and in ways that turner can really impact it his block rate individually still sky high um you know over eight percent this year which it has been you know in that range before and turner we used to harp on this a lot uh that the pacers he wasn't a great rebounder but also the team wasn't great at rebounding when he's on the floor that has shifted a bit no it's fascinating number one i mean he's i've talked about him as just like one of the worst guys at boxing up both he, he and porzingis interesting because they have somewhat similar skill sets uh, in terms of shooting from the outside and protecting the rim uh and his individual rebounding 25.6 percent defensive rebounding that's very solid but also they're just rebounding much better as a team when he's on the floor as well they are holding teams to an eight percent worse offensive rebound rate so their defensive rebound rate is eight percent higher so far when, when turner is on the floor that's when i i need to really now that i see that stat this is going to be one of those ones where you see the stat and then you watch the film versus hmm this he looks like he's doing a better job rebounding let me look at the stat next time i watch a pacers game i want to see how it looks for him because yeah. that that is very interesting yeah and the the defensive rebound rate in and of itself even irrespective of the differential is is positive and and we they early in their kind of the turner sabona stuff they were having real problems there and part of it also you the split could be because the pacers are mostly out of necessity going pretty small when turner's off the floor it's typically sabonis and either tory craig or o'shea Brissett out there and, and Brissett can grab some rebounds of course but like that and and their guards aren't necessarily the greatest rebounders depending on on who the supporting talent is at that point in time and then the other important one with miles turner this is you know something that i've obsessed about with him going back to his days at texas is that teams are only making 54 percent of their shots around the rim when turner's on the floor and that's phenomenal you would love to see the attempt rate go down a little bit but they're not making them and that 54 percent oh you know it goes up to 64 percent when a certain other player is the only big man on the fort <clears throat> yeah and they basically, as you mentioned, never play without one of the two of them, uh, which, you know, Isaiah Jackson and Goga Batadze probably not going to play too much, it would seem like. I, I actually think, I think Isaiah might when he's healthy, but remember, he's week to week with, I can't remember what the injury is. Um, knee, knee injury. Knee injury. Um, yeah. But I, I, it seems like Carlisle and... And, and, the, and I don't think they gave us anything more than knee. It was maybe it's like sprained knee or hyperextended. They yeah. didn't actually give us a real diagnosis. Yeah. Maybe there's a It seems like the brass... 
Haas likes Jackson more than Batatze, but how much more? You know, they already have all these other guys that they can play. And theoretically, at some point, weeks, not months, is the last thing that Carlisle said they'll get TJ Warren back. And that will put that will put more pressure on, you know, like that, that adds another guy to the rotation who will squeeze some other guys out. Let's get to the Pistons. And I watched their game last night against Brooklyn, which actually ended up pretty close to it. by the end. We'll get to that. They are one in eight. Negative 14.4 net rating is a predictable 30th in the NBA. 97.0 offensive rating is a predictable 30th in the NBA. Uh. Defensive rating, 111.3 is 25th. That maybe that'll that'll get a little bit better. They project for a mere 21 wins, which would be 15th in the conference. They have a less than 0.1% chance of making the playoffs per Raptor, but 2% chance per ELO. Mm. Uh, Killian Hayes is out day-to-day with a thumb injury, did not play against Brooklyn. They actually started Josh Jackson in his place and made Cade uh, the point guard. Um, And then uh, shooting on either end has not been a forte for them. No, and not a surprise that the the Pistons are having trouble shooting their personnel. Personnel is not great there. Um, It's, I mean, they're doing, I think it's it's 31% effective field goal percentage on pull-ups. Is that right? Like, that's insane. Yes. Oh, yes. 31 percent effective field goal percentage. yeah because i mean that that counts that counts threes so they're roughly six out of 22 on pull-ups per game oh and emphasis on the roughly and then to make matters worse yes teams don't have as much control over this opponents are shooting 43 percent from three against the pistons in the early going so far so that's even harder to come back yeah. and that's part of why i agree with you that their defense will be better statistically at least than it has been and you know they as as they kind of get into get into some of these more talented lineups and as their offense i think their offense has looked meaningfully better just in terms of flow when cade's been out there even though his shooting hasn't been great individually 100 yeah. percent. and yeah. so like and when you have a 97 offensive rating that also makes it so much harder on your defense because you have to defend and transition so much more and so as they're they're kind of they're on the wrong side of feedback loops and i think being more often on the right side of it will help them out a lot yeah so getting to that brooklyn detroit game i mentioned that cade started at the one i thought his jumper looked a little bit better than it had um you know i I still i didn't get a chance to go back and and do that film work because i decided to watch the whole game that he played and said he did actually play on a back-to-back for the first time after sitting out one early in his comeback from the ankle uh but he stuck a a long three off the pick and roll that looked pretty good uh blake griffin i wouldn't say he got mercilessly booed but he got booed and i thought that that was absolutely completely ridiculous that blake griffin basically gave them the last decent moments of his career as a star level of player he had a wonderful 18 19 he made all nba and he had one of the great games of his career as a 45 point game they beat okc and that was basically the last great game that blake griffin would ever play in his life he then had to sit out with all these knee issues he misses the end of the year they do still make the playoffs anyway they're getting completely destroyed in one of the most hopeless playoff series of all time against the Bucks. he comes back for games three and four at home just because he felt like he needed to he was a total shell of himself he has surgery he essentially misses the whole next year uh and then ends up coming back again doesn't have it gets bought out and yeah you know what he like 
had a, has has had some dunks for Brooklyn, but he also has been playing the five and had more time to rehab, and he also doesn't have the ball, well, and it doesn't get sapped by that and, as well. And you so, know what else? Yeah. If Blake Griffin doesn't take that buyout, I'm not sure the Pistons end up getting Kate, Kate Cunningham. That's interesting. I mean, he wasn't exactly helping them, but yeah, I mean, it was clear. Yeah, it's not like like they shut him down. I'm not sure whose decision that was, but clearly they made the the organization made the decision they were going in another direction. So it's like, oh, he was he was just like taking it easy to suck and get bought out. Is that the reason to boo him? It's just. And you know what? Even if that's true, even if he wanted out of there when the organization was clearly going another direction, which they were, he also took a huge buyout. Right? Like he, he's he w- just wanted to go somewhere and win. He's cost himself probably ten million bucks for that. He's going to probably be on minimums the rest of his career now. And like the guy gave everything he possibly could to the organization. Probably w- one of the greater instances of that that I can recall in recent years. Quite frankly, I mean, who knows whether him pushing at the end is what led to him never being the same again because he had plenty of knee issues but yeah that's that i that really bothered me i i felt like he he deserved better than that um but let's get into this game though i do think that blake is still not exactly what the nets need i mean their their center situation is so interesting nick claxton is gonna miss another two weeks apparently with this non-covid illness but uh, like what are your thoughts on their center situation at, at this point between blake lamarcus you know i guess paul you throw paul Millsap in in that mix as well though he played i think exclusively at the four in this game it's tough because while they have a lot of, you know, well-known options, there isn't anybody that, you know, there isn't anybody in particular who I think is a great pick and roll partner for Harden, which is a, which is a challenge I think has been part of the reason yeah. why he's- he, he and, he and LaMarcus were finding more of rhythm. LaMarcus was hitting everything uh, on long twos out of pick and pop in this game. And for the season, LaMarcus is shooting, oh, uh, 87% from 16 feet to the three point line and 58% from 10 to 16 feet and 58% from three to 10 feet, 29% on threes and uh, 79% at the rim. So yeah, LaMarcus is shooting 66% from the field and he's got 69% true shooting. So he's been pretty good so far offensively, but I thought it was pretty funny that he had it going and Nash still didn't trust him at the end of the game. He went to Blake, which well, as we shall see, actually paid off. Blake was good at the at the end of this game. But. And part of that, I mean, what you, you watched this game more closely than I did. Aldridge got a port. 16 points negative 16 plus minus yeah his defense is not a a, yeah. a huge plus he, he also they've brooklyn again don't worry we'll get to plenty of detroit stuff too here but uh brooklyn they're still kind of searching on that second unit we saw again minutes where at the start of the fourth where they were outscored nine to two in about two minutes where neither harden nor durant was on the floor and they did put patty mills out there patty mills didn't even come in until there was two minutes left in the third in the second half but the idea was like he his chemistry with aldridge from being team mates in san antonio for a while is something that could work but then they also had the same thing that they've had already which is no shooting and no superstars on the floor it was mills Javon Carter, Bembry, Millsap, and Aldridge out there. And yeah, like you're just, it's going to be pretty tough to score there. And then you don't really have a ton of defense either. So I, it's just, I think, I don't know whether it's that D'Antoni isn't there anymore, or maybe they just are trying to keep Harden's minutes down. They don't feel that he can be the engine by himself as much. They did bring Harden back in eventually uh, after that two minutes. But yeah, the start of the second, start of the fourth has been a real bugaboo for the Nets uh, so far. And that's, they were 
controlled the game. They're up 15 in the third, and that really got Detroit back into it here. Yeah, and one other, I, I just want to make it as kind of a straight point now, this to be something I want to dig into later, is that it when I've watched the Nets, it seems like their defense in particular has looked so much better when they've been playing another former Piston, Bruce Brown, with the starting lineup. And so the, some of the stats on that, Durant and Brown together, because I use Durant as kind of a rough proxy for the starters, plus 6.3 net rating and a much better defense, though, I mean, you're always you're always wondering about, you know, like opponent three-point shooting is a little bit worse and all that type of stuff. But I, I just think that the Nets make so much more sense and it was really bewildering to me maybe it was health or something that brown was such a small part of their early plans especially like, he basically got a dnp in that opening night game against the bucks right oh, oh bruce brown yeah. yeah i think they've gone back to him uh, at this point oh yeah oh yeah they have um, no, i mean he start he started against yeah. the pistons and played 26 right right yeah right yeah i, I mean I, he's but it, yeah i i don't know why they but but they, they had to have nick claxton guard chris middleton so probably don't want to start bruce brown yeah and we'll see how things change with, with claxton back yeah this is yet another kind of weird setback for Claxton he's had a number of these uh had the shoulder issue in his rookie year I think it was um so James Harden uh featured in maybe two of the worst basketball plays I've ever seen uh one middle of the third quarter before the Nets would go on their run and at one point hit 14 of 17 field goals in the third to go up by 14 James Harden gets stripped at half court by Josh Jackson Josh Jackson has a guy ahead of him doesn't pass it to him goes in for a dunk instead and banks it off the back rim and then KD comes right back down and hits a three so they could have tied it and instead they're down six and the Nets gonna run KD struggled he was three of ten in the first half but he finished 12 out of 27 played much better in the second including uh some of the icing plays late I mean he's just so unstoppable getting to his left and hitting that fading shot going across the lane to to his left uh because he brings the ball up on the left side of his body you can't get a hand on it to strip him and then he's just he can extend it over the defense and, and his touch is incredible the other play that Harden featured in that was one of the worst right up there with the did, Dan, did you see that Russell Westbrook play oh my god I sent it to ago? you yes I saw it yes yes thank you I I thought I got it from you yeah well, feel free to describe it if, if you'd like to. oh I mean, it was an atrocity. Basically, Russell Westbrook playing one on four and taking like three shots in the same possession and then pe- trying to pass it. I think, he, did he end it with trying to pass to somebody and then passing it into like the third row? I'm trying to remember how Yeah, that yeah. Went. He finally tries to pass it to DeAndre Jordan. Like, yeah, he just drove in, either got stripped or blocked. It might have been four times in a row. Never passed it, just kept driving in again and getting stopped again and getting it back. And then he throws it, you know, five feet over DeAndre but Jordan. But I side. actually, in some ways, think the Harden play is worse just because all. Oh, yeah. All, because it's just effort well well, it's it's the it's the caricature of the absolute worst aspects of westbrook versus the absolute worst aspects of Harden. uh this play was great so harden like westbrook tried to drive a couple of times in sadiq bay and didn't even come close to getting separation uh he's kind of he first he tried to drive with the middle didn't work he kind of backs it out to the left wing kd is like all right you're kind of coming towards me here i guess i'll just uh walk over the other side of the floor harden tries again he's probably held the ball for me eight or nine seconds at this point and then he gets stripped by Sadiq Bay, and so he just start, he ran after it pretty quickly at first and then he just kind of started jogging after it went into the backcourt it's the ball's at his feet the whole time and then Sadiq Bay just runs up behind him grabs the ball and goes in for a dunk in the backcourt like James Harden just couldn't be bothered to bend over and grab the ball to create a backcourt violation and prevent a fast break so Bay just comes up there and takes it from like he did it's like I don't know if Harden didn't realize that you like you could do that but but you, but Nate, like, but Nate you know the Pistons half-court offense is so dominant that getting a half-court possession against them it's basically just the same as giving them two points oh man yeah so that that was 
that was atrocious. Harden had another bad game to me. I mean, he, there was a play in the first half where he came down and it was just Kelly Olynyk under the basket picking him up. He had some momentum on a fast break and he just decided to back it out. Like you can't go at Kelly Olynyk, maybe one of the worst rim protecting centers in the league. That was that was a distressing. Um, now in Harden's defense, he he also got called for the uh, grab, go up through the guy's arm and grab it. But I think it was Jackson who was defending him. But Jackson has his forearm like in Harden's stomach, and then Harden like he does sort of go through an exaggerated abnormal motion and that's where the foul call came but there was clear illegal contact by Jackson before then and I think maybe if Harden goes up with just a normal motion he could get the call but this is one of the things that I questioned in the new rules is particularly that one with the hooking is to, for the guy to get hooked most of the time it's because he's already got his forearm into him and he's creating uh, he's not in legal guarding position he's creating illegal contact and then the hook just kind of exposes that and so are they just not calling that as much that's that's what some people have been saying you know evan wash in the nba we, as we said in bond temps article uh, are saying that that wasn't the case uh, let's talk a little bit more detroit here though uh frank jackson which you know not exactly a household name but i actually think they should consider starting him next to cade particularly while killian hayes is out because jackson is their best shooter other than maybe a linux and he can he actually like comes off screens off the balls in case he ran a really nice uh baseline out of bounds play to get him open at, at one point to the opposite corner uh it was almost basically like a hammer screen but on a on a baseline out of bounds play and which was pretty difficult to guard without switching so you got a wide open through with that it looked pretty good but just to have the element of someone coming off screens when they just as you mentioned how shitty they are with pull-ups they're six out of 22 on pull-ups every game so they just they need some other plays that they can run and josh jackson uh is not the answer uh, uh he's been like you know 22 percent on wide open threes this year i think i saw the stat um and also just he fits better next to k to give him a little bit more spacing uh, as well and grant has been okay as a spot-up guy he really struggled doing anything in terms of individual offense in this one uh there was one sequence where Cade and kd went at each other uh kd is definitely way smaller than kd i mean that was one thing that came out a little bit is that Cade's only 6'6 and he's got a pretty decent wingspan but he does he looks a little small out there compared to combo forward obviously duran is huge but compared to your combo forward type like he's really kind of Cade's kind of more in between a two and a three than in between a three and a four like you know maybe someone like jason tatum or jalen brown is um and so kd had the size advantage on him and, and scored on him pretty pretty easily at least by kd's standards everything everything is hard for him but he also makes it look easy at the same time uh and then Cade tried to go back at him one-on-one and didn't wasn't really able to get a good look he had to kind of go for a difficult floater on the one hand nash layup that ended up not being close but that was just fun seeing those two guys go at each other you know kd kind of turned on the intensity in the in the third quarter and uh kate also had a nice step back three on patty mills against the switch and uh then k gets him with the one in the last two minutes with a pull-up three off the dribble and then they're down three about 37 seconds left he drives along the lane line to the right and blake griffin draws a charge on him kind of a bullshit call uh, on the charge i thought he was sliding under it but he gets the call Detroit already used their challenge. Then KD misses a, a jumper. Blake tips the rebound out, and then KD blows by. I think it was Sadiq Bay for the icing layup uh, to end it. But yeah, good, good effort for the Pistons. They look competitive in this one, and for the Nets, just another extremely over underwhelming hmm. offensive effort. Yeah, and to give Brooklyn stats overall, um, six and three on the season, um, but only tenth in net rating, plus two point six per hundred possessions, eighteenth on offense. 
11th on defense, um, and then, you know, the projection. And so a couple other important kind of points before we move on from them. Uh, the There was a, some, a little bit of a scuttlebutt. Um, New York mayor-elect Eric Adams in the very early stuff seemed like he might be revisiting the mandate, the, the, uh, the vaccine mandates that New York City has. And so maybe that would be a possibility for Kyrie Irving. He got asked. Yeah, no, he, di- he didn't actually. That was, I thought that was just like terrible aggregation, honestly. Could be. Like that, you, it, you know it better than he, I do. He was, he was clearly, he was clearly talking about uh, the mandate for New York City employees oh okay like the the fire department and, and he's like we're gonna negotiate with the union on the mandate basically is what he was saying and remember like it's not that Kyrie like can't practice like this isn't a regulation on employers the reason that he can't play at Barclays Center is because it's this huge public event and you're not allowed to go into big public events unvaccinated unless you're vaccinated so that's that's not going to change and he said again today that, that that's not going to change it but it never like people who were seizing on that as like a news story it had that quote had nothing to do with anything that ever could have had something to do with Kyrie. The other Nets thing I want to mention is that so far this year, they have been the worst offensive rebounding team in the league by far below 18% when no other team is below 20%. So they're pretty far clear. And then I brought up, well, I'll talk plenty about their transition defense in the future. But instead, we can transition to the Chicago Bulls. Currently, as we're recording this, knee-deep in a game against the Philadelphia 76ers, which of course is not reflected in our stats. Bulls at this time are 6-2 and two, and a strong fifth in net rating plus 7.9 per possessions and that's because they're top 10 on both offense and defense eighth on offense fifth on defense but the 538 Raptor model is still lower on them projecting they'll finish with 42 wins tied for eighth and 51 percent chance of making playoffs but ELO is more positive 72 percent yeah, you know, there are a number of things that have changed, and Casey Johnson made this point, and obviously he's someone who talks to people within the Bulls quite a bit, that the Bulls have done a very nice job of fixing some of their weaknesses from last year. What was one of those weaknesses? Well, they never got to the foul line. They're now tied for the highest free throw attempt rate in the league with Miami, uh, 22 per 100 field goal attempts. Zach Levine is one of the few stars to actually increase his free throw rate from last year from 27% to 33%. And again, since this is a declining free throw environment, that's impressive. Uh, DeRozan is down a little bit, but obviously getting DeRozan really helped as well to uh, increase their free throw rate because he's a, a very high free throw player. You know, Bob Volgaris was saying that his numbers on the rare times when DeRozan has played with four shooters around him, he's been nearly unstoppable. Um, another issue that they were trying to fix was they're a really high turnover team uh, over the years. And Levine has lowered his turnover rate by a couple of percentage. And then getting Vucevic and DeRozan, again, not moves that necessarily agreed with at the time. And, you know, we'll see where these guys uh, end up and whether those moves were worth it. But both Vucevic and DeRozan in particular, very low turnover players. And so now they are totally decent uh, at not turning the ball over there. In fact, they're fourth. Yeah, yeah. It, outstanding. So, yeah, thanks for finding that. I thought I had it in my notes and I didn't. Um, um, so DeRozan, I you know he's even taking two point three threes a game, which is the, that's the most since he's been in Toronto. It, there was a time when everyone's like, yeah, he's actually taking threes, and uh, it wasn't hitting a ton of them. But and then he obviously in San Antonio they weren't going to encourage him to do that. But now he actually is taking some. He's hitting I think thirty eight percent, and you know two point three threes a game is not that much, but it's at least enough where guys are are going to close out on him at least a little bit, and that's that's all he needs, right? He just needs to not just be totally left wide open or 
to force guys to close out of it and then he can attack that because uh there was one play in the game i was watching i want to say maybe it was the boston game where he got an open three didn't take it passed it up and then a couple possessions later he got the same look and he did take it i think he realized like oh wait i'm supposed to take that like i shouldn't pass up because they ended up not getting anything on that possession um nikola vucevic however uh, i i should also add to that derozan is actually the second highest usage of his career right now at 31 percent. he had one year 16 17 where he's 34 percent in toronto um and he was only 26 percent in san antonio so it's interesting that he's 31 percent now they do have more threats than that team in san antonio had last year but you would think so at least more high-end threats with vooch and with levine but then you know lonzo's not really like a pick and roll type of guy or, or and caruso isn't so some of the other guards are not really that high usage so this team is kind of built for derozan and levine to be you know both above 30 percent usage but to that end vooch is actually down he was 29 percent usage last year he's like 21 percent, and we've talked some about uh his struggles uh, already um and then defensive you know i've kind of been sifting through trying to find you know okay is there something unsustainable here they've been better than we expected defensively i don't know but you didn't i haven't really found anything in the statistical indicators that would show oh man it's just their defense is a total fluke right now uh to be fifth in defense i don't i don't expect that they will finish there or necessarily even top 10 but there's nothing just like you know oh they're allowing 28 percent three-point shooting or something like that right and none of the none of the absolute like easy hallmarks that you and I've gone to over the years are really present. I mean, ended up largely holding for the Knicks last year, but they like the unsustainable opponent three-point shooting can be one or like forcing, like they are forcing a lot of turnovers, but it's not insane. And I mean, they have, especially on the second unit, they have a lot of guys that can. Yeah, that, that's gone down because it was at like a Oh yeah, they were like 20% number, I think right? at one point. Um, and they're not fouling a ton. I think that's, I think that's pretty reasonable. So yeah, I, I'd say, I'd say there's, there, there's a step back that could very well be there. But I mean, right now, now they're sixth if you take a step back and you're between 10th and 20th that would be phenomenal with how good their offense has been yeah they their offense started off bad and that's actually gotten a, a lot better lately to to be up to eighth now um if there is something that i would point to potentially that wouldn't sustain about their defense it would be that they're allowing 60 percent at the rim which is top 10 and then only 29 percent on floaters which the league average there is 40 percent or more um although you know their second unit now with 20 bradley out there i think they actually are going to protect the room pretty well see how they score uh they are also 29th in percentage of shots allowed at the rim so they allow the second most percentage of shots at the rim and so that means that if that number of the percentage of makes a lot at the rim goes down then their defense could crater because they're allowing a lot of shots there so they are dependent on keeping that number low the knicks remember last year were able to keep that low vucevic his numbers over the years haven't been as bad as maybe his reputation would have suggested uh he, he personally is allowing 59% of the rim on shots that he contests, which is not a crazy good number. That's probably below average for a center. Average for a center is probably in the mid 50s. Uh, last year was 64%. That was pretty rough, but the year before that was 61 and then 56. So the 59%, that's not a big outlier there. Uh, and then when they have Vooch out there, opponents do take a lot fewer shots at the rim. When he goes to the bench, then they don't, a, a lot of the minutes they've been playing, they haven't had a traditional rim protector. Now they probably, uh, with Patrick Williams out, maybe they'll go with Tony Bradley more. So it'll be interesting to see how things change there. Um, and then also this team has been really good in the clutch uh, so far. Their main closing unit, what are the numbers on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, their main closing unit has been extremely effective, fueled by some of these these comebacks that they've been doing. They have a basically a plus 
30 net rating, um, 119 offense, 90 defense, both of which are ridiculous. But, you know, we talked about how there isn't something, there isn't something unsustainable in their overall defensive numbers. Opponents are shooting below 30% from three and 16% from mid-range against yeah. their closing now, five. One yeah. six. Now that's not only, to be clear, that's not only in clutch time. That's that just overall. the closing Thank five of, of, yeah, Caruso and in place of what was Patrick Williams in the starting lineup and then the the uh, core four of Ball, Vucevic, Levine, and DeRozan. So yeah, that the uh, that group though is is getting pretty lucky. Opponents are shooting 29% from three, 16% from mid-range. So they just can't hit a jumper at all. Um, and the, the core four all together, they're getting pretty lucky in terms of opponent shooting. But when those guys are, aren't all on the floor together, it's normalized. They're actually allowing like 36% from three, which is above average right now. Um, I think that's all I got in these guys, though. So th- these indicators are, are pretty decent so far. In particular, they got to be extremely pleased with uh, the way that DeRozan has played in particular. Um, but however, a team that is not pleased with how its defense has played is the Charlotte Hornets. Oh, no. So the Hornets are still a totally respectable 5-5, five and five, despite, you know, they're outperforming at the 22nd net rating. They're at negative 1.6, though there is kind of a there is a, a little bit of a mass kind of around around there where they could do it but so charlotte is outperforming their point differential by the sixth highest rate which is actually the third highest in the eastern conference cleveland number one brooklyn number two outperforming their point differential and those interested indiana underperforming it by the most because partially because of those two overtime losses the hornets We'll start with something that I think is a truly significant positive, which is that as of this moment, they have the lowest turnover rate in the NBA, just 12.4% of their possessions. And they've been 26th and 25th each of the last two years. And it's not just, oh, you swapped out and you got Ish Smith as your backup point guard and all of a sudden your second unit isn't turning the ball over at all. Like it's not, it's not something that basic. It's been a more whole team thing. And that starts with LaMelo Ball. This um, I mean, so that last year, Hornets turned it over 16% of the time when Lomelo was on the floor. That's down to 12.5, which is roughly the same as when Lomelo sits. And interestingly, Ball's turnover rate per 100 possessions per game isn't actually down that much, but he has the ball in his hands more. His usage has gone up, his assist, you know, his assist rate. So his turnover rate. Yeah, well, well, so so yeah, when you say turnover rate, you mean you're talking about uh, per his own place. Per his own place, just, yes. Yeah, so, not, per, not per possession. Yes, per his own place has has gone down because he has the ball in his hands more. He's turning it over the same overall. So that's, you know, it's a lower yeah. proportion. Yeah, the, the denominator, it's kind of the same number of turnovers, but yeah. the denominator the numerator is staying up. the same. The denominator is going up. So the overall number decreases. Um, yes. And that's enough on the really good stuff for the Pistons. Let's get into their defense. Inspired by... Well, the, the, the Hornets. Sorry. But yes, yes. They, they, they wish they had the Pistons defense. They do. Um, and inspired by the Hornets giving up 140 points in a regulation game to the Sacramento Kings, albeit the Kings that shot 22 of 44 from three. But something I wanted to mention kind of at the outset here is that you and I talked numerous times and like we even got into Borrego, James Borrego's coach of the year chances because we thought that the Hornets outperformed their defensive talent. They were 20th in defense last year. I agree. I still think they outperformed their talent and now they are not outperforming it because they are currently 29th. And so there are kind of two different strains here that I think are, I think are interesting. So one is, you know, this came up, you know, going back to the very beginning of this podcast in terms of where teams are taking 
their shots and whether those shots are going in. So we'll start with where teams are taking their shots. Hornets are sixth worst in opponent location effective field goal percentage. Opponents are taking a ton of threes, not many mid-rangers. So that's not great. You know, generally speaking, the idea is that unless you're doing a really good job, Jedi mind tricking the right shooters to shoot or doing something else, like that's not going to go super well for you. But the bigger problem, as I see it, is that opponents are making 71% of their shots in the restricted area, 46% from floater, and then 36 from three is also bad, but that's not like all, like one of the worst in the league. Now, I would expect both the restricted area and floater range to regress to the mean for those to look a little bit better, but a big concern for them is you go, oh, you know, they've, they've had all these changes and, you know, sometimes they've been playing uh, Nick Richards, who isn't a rookie, but is still very young, a backup center. Like, how is it looking when Mason Plumlee's on the floor? Not any better. In fact, a little bit worse. Worse. They're actually doing uh, same at, opponents are doing the same at the restricted area, same from floater range. And while the defense gets significantly worse overall when Plumlee sets, like the shot distribution and something else, it's not better enough to make you think, oh, well, it'll be it'll improve over the course of the year. No, that that's definitely a concern. And I mean, the percentage that they're shooting in the restricted area, it's at that seventy one percent. They are have the worst two point defense overall in the NBA, giving up fifty eight percent from two. They They can't get a defensive rebound where they're 26. They foul a lot. They're 21st in fouling. That's something that Borrego coming out of that Spurs tree would have have liked to avoid. You know, those Mike D'Antoni teams, these small teams, like, yeah, okay, at least you're not fouling, so you're keeping the action going. You can come back and play offense quickly. Um, And then for their own offense, you know, we we talked about how they're fourth in offense. They have the number one three-point percentage in the NBA right now. That's not as subject to variation as your defensive three-point percentage, but still, you know, I'm not sure that this is the number one three-point shooting team in the NBA. I think LaMelo and Miles Bridges in particular might be a little bit over their heads. Um, You know, I keep saying that about Bridges though, and it's, uh, he keeps shooting it. Um, One area where their luck will probably turn at least a little bit is their 26th in opponent free throw percentage. Yep. Um, And they are 26th in their own free throw percentage, but they employ Mason Plumlee who gets fouled a lot. So I don't know if that's going to get that much better. Well, and another part going back a little bit to their defense that concerns me is that yes, there are some changes in personnel, but not, not, I would say dramatic ones is that a lot of the things that have been the worst for the Pistons defensively are places where they struggled last year. And so, you know, you keep, you keep saying the Pistons. Why do I keep saying the Pistons? Anyway, do you, do you want them to be the Pistons? I mean, we could combine those two teams. That'd be kind of fun. Um, so the Hornets, so the, the, the one big shift that, and I think this will improve at least a little bit is opponent free throw attempt rate. Like they were actually pretty good in that. They were very good in that last year. And the Hornets are giving up our foul. They're hacking a ton this year. And I, I think yeah. we'll see. We'll see. I mean, they got a lot of young guys. They do, yeah, but they had a lot of young uh, guys last year too. Um, and yeah. the Hornets are forcing turnovers at a decent rate, but it's like this team isn't they don't have great defensive person person that or personnel they don't it's just a lot of the, they don't communicate either no. I mean, people want to know more about their 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 defensive issues with that pod that we did on wednesday night that little mini pod yeah we talked about that but yeah i mean the, those two games i didn't watch the game against the kings but uh it, I, i'm it, guessing it, it was didn't surprise it same. didn't surprise me that the kings got up 44 threes and it didn't surprise me that a lot of them went went in and something to kind of remember about that you and i didn't watch that game is that Buddy Heald got 17 three-point attempts. 
And that was another, like, Jordan Poole went off in that game that we talked about against the Warriors. And it's like, they're they're not communicating. They're not threat assessing very well. And so the a lot of teams can get the guys they want shooting threes, shooting threes. So it's kind of the opposite of the Jedi mind trick defense that has come up in the past. Let's get to the Hawks here now. Four and five, 20th in net rating. That's disappointing that they started off pretty well. Their offense has not been so good right now. We'll get to that to some degree. But uh, you watched their game against the Jazz, which we're going to talk about. Uh, offense 14th 108.6 defense all the way down to 21st now 109.9 still project for 46 wins which would be a tie for fifth in the east 75 percent chance of the playoffs per raptor 65 percent chance per elo and we'll get a chance to check out these hawks live on monday 10 eastern 7 pacific hawks at warriors please get your questions in using the hashtag NBA cast. We can really use those, especially ahead of time. We just click on the hashtag and, and that's how we get them. So it's nice to actually see those ahead of time. So we can kind of think about them a, a little bit, give you a little bit better answers. So, and if uh, you got a pretty good chance of getting your question answered uh, on the other, if you're a league pass subscriber, so that should be a really fun one. Hawks uh, at warriors on Monday. How about this game that they played against the jets? Yeah, it was, it was a weird one because Utah was playing without Donovan Mitchell. And so you wondered about, you know, how's their, how's their offense going to flow? And early on, I thought that the Hawks were doing a nice job forcing turnovers, keeping the Jazz out of rhythm. Also helped by Jordan Clarkson continuing this insane cold streak that he'd been on. So at the longest they got was, I think it was midway through the third quarter. Between three games, he had missed 23 straight three-pointers. And so that was kind of kind of giving him a little bit of latitude. And then the pendulum swung basically as hard as it can the other way. Clarkson got 25 points in the second half, including four or five from three. He was plus 26 just in the second half. The Hawks and the Hawks don't really have great ways of countering that that kind of like smaller score. They you know I'm intrigued by DeAndre Hunter, but he's not really that type of defender. And they you know maybe you could have used. DeLon Wright. DeLon Wright only played three minutes, and that was that I believe that was all garbage time. So they went off, and I thought Gobert was was overall he was excellent, not a big surprise. And and Capella had trouble handling him, which is not the not the first time that has ever happened. Those guys used to play in the same conference. They now do not. And after the game, Nate McMillan, I'm not hugely surprised that he was very frustrated with their defense. The Jazz scored 77 in the second half. But I thought that the, the, there were times when the Hawks defense looked better. They had they forced 10 first half turnovers and that dropped all the way to four, only four in the second half, part of why the Jazz were able to go off. Um, and they had four turnovers and 20 assists in one half. Um, and then one of the other things that um, I thought that the Hawks were doing better, and you could talk about this interesting that's against the Jazz, who this has come up for, of for giving up a lot of shots around the basket. So I think a lot of that was giving up more dribble penetration in the second half than they did in the first half, but Utah took 24 shots in the paint in the second half, and um, we're also, like, they were, and that was 24 when you're not getting offensive rebounds. Actually, like, that's kind of worse. So I would say, like, yes, the Hawks should have won this game. They were the home team. They were ahead. They were playing the opponent without one of their best players, and it wasn't like Conley went supernova. Instead, it was Jordan Clarkson for a half. So disappointing, not cataclysmic, not anything else. And it, it wasn't the best Trey Young performance either. I thought that he, you know, he had some really nice distribution moments and, there were, you know, we got to see some of that Hawks ball movement, especially in the first half. So I would say it wasn't great, but it also wasn't ridiculous. Yeah. A- another interesting thing for the Hawks 
is that they are second in the NBA in pull-up shots, but unlike pull up, the Knicks... Pull up, so they, frequency, Hawks, just to be clear, right? Uh, no, just like overall shots per game. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that there is a place to Oh, no, I, I just meant it's in terms of they were number, they're number two in pull-ups in terms of taking the most, not in terms of making the most. Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, attempts, pull-up attempts, shots, not make. Uh, so they're second in the NBA. They take 31 pull-ups per game, but unlike the Knicks, who evenly distribute those between twos and threes, the Hawks take 21 pull-up twos per game and only 10 pull-up threes per game. We noted it on the Struggling Stars pod that Trey Young is taking fewer of those than ever. And then that has not been particularly effective for them. They have a 38% e-field goal percentage on those pull-ups which is not great when you're also taking the second most pull-ups in the league. That is third worst in the league. So third worst accuracy on the second highest volume. That's not a good combination for this Hawks off. Yeah, and something else that's a very preliminary concern is that, so DeAndre Hunter, I brought up, you know, when we did the Shooting Stars podcast, we did for players that are more established than DeAndre Hunter, that a lot of the, guys- The struggling, the struggling, struggling Stars, Stars podcast. podcast. Is, that's right. We're, we're at like hour, hour two yes. here. We're, we're, it's okay. Is that a lot of guys have their free throw attempt rate drop but hunters is one of the more shocking ones he he's only taken eight free throws in eight games overall this year and he's three for eight i'm far more concerned about the eight than the three for eight um and so that is part of why it's not a dramatic drop in terms of true shootings 60 to 57 percent but being at 57 percent when he's shooting 45 percent on threes at a high volume like it's just kind of like well if the bottom falls out there there isn't much that he would have to gain it in ways that aren't really happening right now you have to get to the basket more get those kind of shots but again the hawks you know he's only played in eight games the hawks have only played nine in total i'm not freaked out about it yet but i do want to keep an eye on it so we can close with this danny one uh, uh earlier in this pod i noted that duncan robinson was five out of 17 from three without taking a two-pointer in the game against the boston celtics and i posited that i thought that had never happened in nba history when a player had taken 17 or more threes and zero twos i was incorrect there's one other player who has done it he also took exactly 17 threes and zero twos i will give you a hint on who this player is he's probably most associated i don't say most associated well all right let's be easy uh he is he was playing for the cleveland cavaliers at the time corver corver could never get up that many in a game i just thought he might have done it once uh, jr it's, it's a good guess jr smith is the answer against the bulls on the halcyon date of april 4th or i'm sorry april 5th 2015 regular season game against chicago eight out of 17 from three in 43 minutes and that is a great way to end this thanks so much for being a subscriber and we will talk to y'all on monday till then at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.